Happy Sabbath, church family. What beautiful, beautiful music. I love, love those songs, and I love the French horn. It, there's a sweetness to it. I love the other brass instruments too, but French horn is, is better in my opinion. You know, for those of you who know me, you know what I'm going to say next. What a wonderful week in Southwest Michigan, right? It is beautiful. You can actually feel the sun when it's outside. You know, sometimes in like December, January, you see the sun, but you go out and you're like, no, I don't feel it. Um, it's nice when you can go out and you can feel it. And uh, I love this time of year because I know winter is fighting a losing battle. So at this time of year, I'm happy to say, winter, do your worst. In November, I'm more like, winter, please be kind. You know, it's, we had a good year last year. It's okay with me if it's the same and so on and so forth. So I love this time of year, seeing the green again, and it's only going to increase more so. Reminds me a little bit of the resurrection when God will make all things new again. It'll look a million times better than anything that we can see here in the spring. But it is something which coming from Australia where everything is green all the time, you don't appreciate as much. Well, I shouldn't say it's green all the time. When there's drought, everything goes yellow. But um, for the most part, I mean, we have things that flower even in the winter. So that's nice, but you don't appreciate it as much. Well, today our topic is responsibility. And uh, before we get into uh, some qualifications that I'm going to give to help you better situate what it is that I'm going to talk about this morning, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we come before you and we're just so grateful for your mercy and patience in our, in our own lives. I want to thank you so much for just being there for us for leading us, for guiding us, for the hope that is written in your word. I pray in a special way, Lord, that we would understand from the stories that we look at in your word this morning that there is something that you call us to do, something more. Please help our hearts to be willing to follow you wherever you go and to be willing to be the people you would have us to be at this time in earth's history. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the uh, Oxford Dictionary defines responsibility in a few ways, all of which I think are, are really good. Uh, the, one of the ways it defines it is the state or fact of having a duty to deal with something or of having control over someone. And, and they don't mean having control over someone in some, some kind of a tyrannical sense, but more in the sense of like an employer to employee relationship, right? Certain tasks require multiple people to get it done and you need someone who's in a managerial position and that person has authority over or control over in the sense that when they say, I need this to be done and you're the person who's available now, please go and do that and so on and so forth. This is the sense that they mean having control. Another definition they give is the state or fact of being accountable or to blame for something. That one is definitely true. We, we oftentimes blame those. Sometimes, sometimes uh, how should I say, they are deserving of the blame. Other times we think they are deserving of the blame. We don't know everything that goes on behind the scenes. But to, to be held accountable, we definitely think that is part of responsibility. And the other one here, the third one is given the opportunity or ability to act independently and make decisions without authorization. So you can think of this in the sense of as children, as they grow, their responsibilities also grow with them, right? They, they gain a, a greater measure of responsibility the older they are. Right now, uh, little Sophia, she just turned one this week. Uh, I was reminded of Rob Way, were you a year ago? Well, I was either in the hospital or just coming outside of the hospital. Um, it was a a good, good uh, week, and we have really enjoyed this last year as well with Sophie. But right now, her mother and I determine what she's going to eat. Now, I don't expect that when she's 20 years old, if Jesus hasn't come yet and we're still here, that she's still going to have to call us up and say, what should I eat today? You know, are there certain things that I got? By then, I'm thinking she'll have some responsibility to make her own decisions without needing any authorization. And this is this is what is meant by this third definition, that as you grow or as you put into certain positions um, that you are expected to act responsibly in those positions uh, without needing to continually check. There are two further qualifications that I want to make 
with responsibility. And we're going to get into some of this a little bit more as we go through the biblical passages. But I also want to distinguish between the kind of responsibility that one takes merely by the nature of the position in which they find themselves in. For example, and I mentioned earlier, there's the employer-employee relationship. Now, that's a mutual contract, right? I will work for you, but in return, you expect some sort of product or some kind of service that I will perform. So it's typical that an employer will say, hey, I need you to do so-and-so, and the employee usually shouldn't reply, no, I'm not going to do that, right? I mean, that's the terms of the agreement, that I'm paying you so that you can do these things for me. Another way of looking at it is parents who decide that they would like, or, or, or a married couple who decides that they want to have a child, they cannot decide to have a child and not take up the responsibility to raise and train and provide for the child at the same time. You see that? It's by the very nature of the situation they find themselves in, they take on responsibility because of what it is that you want to do or want to accomplish. Then there is another kind of responsibility, which I would say is more of a volunteer or voluntary type of responsibility where you choose to take on responsibility that you don't actually have to. Nothing is constraining you. Nothing is saying you, you need to do this. You're merely choosing and saying, I believe this is important. I realize I don't have to do this, but it's that important that I'm going to go out and I'll take on more responsibility and, and accomplish this to the best of my ability. And we have those. Typically, this exists more in volunteer organizations, which is not exclusively the church, but is, the church is one place where this kind of responsibility is taken upon uh, or is shared amongst others in terms of uh, meetings, committees. Uh, it's good to do things with a lot of like-minded people rather than having to do it all on your own. So as with all things which uh, exist there's a good way of doing things and there's a bad way of doing things. There's a way in which we can grow in love and there's a way in which we can atrophy in love. There's a way that we can grow in our responsibility and there's a way that we can atrophy in the way that we express our, the responsibilities which we have been given. And so I'm going to be mainly focusing this presentation on that second kind of responsibility, the responsibility where you don't have to, but you choose to. What is it that makes someone either shy away from this kind of responsibility or make someone be extremely drawn to it. That's what we are going to be discussing this morning. And as with uh, anything, we're going to take a look at both examples, two scriptural passages, one which shows a downward trend in terms of the shying away of responsibility and another one which uh, talks about the taking on of responsibility. And the first one is going to be found in the book of Judges. Uh, if you start turning to Judges chapter 2, as you get there, um, what is some of the background to the story of the book of Judges? The children of Israel, you know, Moses uh, accepted God's call, though reluctantly. I mean, uh, yeah, we'll talk about him in a, just a very little bit. He's a good example for some of these uh, excuses that we're going to look at very soon. But he comes, they spend how many years in the wilderness? as they leave Egypt. 40 years, very good. And then Moses dies just before they've conquered the nations on, on the side of the Jordan that are in the wilderness. Now they have to cross the Jordan and begin the conquest of the land on the other side. And who leads them over the Jordan? Joshua does, very good. And he starts with the conquest. They start with Jericho and they go beyond. Does he accomplish the entire, con the entire conquest of the land? No, but does he do a considerable portion of it? Yes, probably, I mean, from what I have seen and from what I've read, the majority of it. Uh, in fact, in Judges chapter 3, there's, there are a few verses there starting from uh, verse 3 to 5, where it says the nations or the lords which were left for them to conquer. And the list is not that extensive. It primarily exists of the nations which were to the north of Israel, up by Mount Lebanon and by Mount Hermon, and also to the southwest where the Philistines uh, were. There were some lords there. The main center part of the land, uh, as, as they had it then, was already uh, 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 through the leadership of, uh, I want to say Joseph, Joshua, thank you. He, uh, 
helped, and of course, by God's leadership and God's strength, they were able to uh, settle the land. Now, the period of the judges, is it, is it a really, you know, if you want your spirit to be energized and, and buoyed up and encouraged that, that society in general is moving in the right direction, is the book of Judges the book you would go to for that? Probably not. Not to say that God isn't working during this period and that God is working through people and that he's able to do amazing, amazing deliverances through certain judges, but it's not the same. So we read at the end of Joshua here, and this text is repeated almost exactly word for word in uh, chapter 2, verse 7 of Judges. So it doesn't matter where you look, whether you're looking at um, Joshua 24, 31 or Judges 2, verse 7, it says here, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So evidently during Joshua's reign, though he wasn't a king, but through his leadership and the elders who were with him and who saw how God moved and worked and were there for the military battles and saw how God provided for them. And at times when he didn't and what those reasons were, they had a confidence in God. They had a walk with God, which the generation after that had already been in the land, which had not seen the war, which had not gone through the tough times that they had gone through, which had not perhaps had to pitch tents in the wilderness for 40 years, they didn't have that experience, which Joshua and the elders who were with him definitely had. So you have the same thing reiterated there in chapter 2 of verse 7. And then it continues here. I'm going to start reading from verse 11, and we'll read most of the rest of the chapter here. But what I love about this portion is that the author of the book of Judges is essentially giving you a summary of what you're going to continue reading now for the rest of the book. They give you an introduction and say, this is what's going to happen as you continue reading. And they are sure to describe the situation that Israel finds itself in at this time. And this is what they write here, starting from verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Then they forsook the Lord God of their fathers and had brought, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Quite the reversal, right, of what we just read about in the book of Joshua, where Joshua was bold. I mean, the enemies, I know Jericho, uh, when the spies went in, who was it that Rahab, who said, no, 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 we've heard about you on the other side, and we're, you know, people on this side are actually afraid of you. It was their enemies who at one point were cowering before Israel and who were scared that the Israelite army was approaching. And now, because of unfaithfulness, you see the opposite happening, that Israel is not able to stand in the face of their enemies. Verse 15, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the land of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. By following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, they did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord, to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, 
nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So we're given here a little sneak peek into why God did not accomplish the full conquest of the land through Joshua. He did so intentionally. Why? To make sure that the generation after was not a weak generation, but was one who would stand strong for the Lord, would obey his commandments, would stay true to the covenant which he made. And so he didn't. And then, of course, we have that summary there in the first part of chapter 3, where we're told of the Philistine lords and those who were up in the north who yet remained in order for the land to, to um, the land which was promised to Abraham to be fully the children of Israel's uh, at that time. So, uh, as we look at this, the reason I wanted to use this story is because what I see here as we go through, and we're not going to go specific through specific stories or examples of where Israel apostatized and then God raised up a judge. But what you tend to see is you tend to see that Israel starts off spiritually strong, right? When Joshua was there, when the elders were there, they knew God, they had a walk with God. And then they started going after other gods. They didn't want to take up the responsibility of the covenant which their forefathers had made. So they shunned that responsibility, say, we're not going to live up to that. Besides, we are, we're comfortable now in the land. We no longer live in tents, mom and dad. We have houses now. We have rebuilt some of the cities. We are comfortable where we are. We don't want to be inconvenienced. Why should I go up north and fight a war where I don't live up there in the north? I live right in the center. I'm far away from the enemies and so on and so forth. I mean, you can imagine what the excuses may have been if you could put yourself in uh, their situation and in their time. But no matter what their excuses were, we are told that uh, particularly in 3 verse 2, it says that God didn't, didn't deliver the whole land so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who didn't know war yet. Because there was an entire generation that didn't need to go out to war uh, while Joshua was uh, leading the army. And now has come the time for them to step in and to take some responsibility. And they didn't want to. And so what you find is you find this slow decline right? Where God, then they're oppressed by the enemies. God sends them a judge. Maybe there's a little blip. It starts going up. But what does the text tell us that we just read in chapter two? Did they listen to the judges? No. And then they followed their own things. It says they actually did worse than their fathers before them. So they're actually declining a little bit more. And then God raises up a judge and then they decline a little bit more. And they go and they do worse. So much so, so that the book of Judges ends how? What's the last verse in the book of Judges? We should have this memorized because it's so good. There was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, if I was to describe to you, I mean, if you want to know how bad things are, read the last few chapters, that last story in the book of Judges. I mean, the first time I read that as a teenager, I was like, if it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe something like that happened because it's just so horrible. Yet this is the state in which society is in, that there is no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The perfect time for you to want to be a leader, right? I mean, if I was to describe to you that this is the age in which we live in, which may not be far from the truth, but we are slowly getting worse and worse. It shouldn't surprise us. That is what the Bible predicts. Is this really the time that you want to be like, oh, pick me for, for a position of responsibility. I, I want to have that responsibility. Not typically. I mean, the state of society got so bad that you find at the beginning of Samuel, what is, what is one of the first things as you read about Samuel's life? He's growing up at the end of this period of judges. Samuel was both a prophet, but he's considered a judge in Israel as well. And they start calling out, we want a king. So they're noticing that something is wrong with their society. I mean, we need some kind of structure, some kind of leadership. But notice none of them are saying, oh, but we'll do it. No, 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 no. We need a king, but not me. Not me. Pick someone else. You take it up so that if the king should fail, we know who we can come to to blame. Right? God is sure to reassure Samuel that it wasn't Samuel that they were rejecting, but it was God's leadership that they were rejecting in their lives. And this is not something which they had just suddenly done all of a sudden. This was a trend which had been happening for many, many centuries. In fact, this whole period of the judges is about 300 to 400 years. Um, yeah. So let's go through what some of the excuses may be today 
and may have been in those times why people may have shunned the responsibility to stand for the truth, to do something which they know, which they know they should have done and should have taken the effort to do, but decided, no, I don't want to take that on. And if I am completely honest with you, which I will be this morning, I myself have made these excuses more than once in my life. So as I go through them, don't feel bad if you've made some of them, because I'm almost certain you have (laughs) at some point. So the first one, a very easy excuse which we often hear, and that is, someone else will do it, right? Someone else can or will do it. Why should I be the one who has to do whatever it is that the task is that is being asked for? Someone else can do it. This is typical, like the nation of Israel. We can go through, we can read in Joshua, we can read in the book of Numbers how large their army was. Why does God need an extra one? I mean, when Judah has tens of thousands of soldiers, do they need you know, tens of thousands and one, I'm not going to make that much of a difference. They have plenty of people that can do that, so I don't need to do anything. This is typically something that can happen today in the church, in the workplace, whatever it is. Well, there's so many of us here, someone else can do that. I remember a a building proverb, which I believe my father told me, and uh, I found it very, very funny. Uh, Maybe it was someone else who told me, and I shared it with my father. I can't remember quite now. It is funnier in the original language. So in Serbian, it is funny, as, as most pro- proverbs are. But it starts off with, uh, with a man who owned a piece of property, and he wanted to build something on it. So he wants to build, but he doesn't have the qualifications to build. So he hires contractors to come and to build uh, this, let's say it was a house. And uh, they start building. They pour the foundation. They start framing the house. And as the owner walks through to kind of inspect how it's looking, he's looking very pleased, and all of a sudden he sees one wall that is leaning. It's crooked. And he goes to the, to the contractors there who are doing the framing, and he says, look, look at that wall. It looks like it's leaning. Don't you think so? You can see it with the eye. And, and, and the, the contractor was very quick to assure him, don't worry, that's the way that it looks. When the guys come to put on the sheetrock on the wall, you won't be able to tell that it's leaning. Some of you know where this is going. And of course, the, the sheetrock contractors come and they, they put in the sheetrock and he walks through the house again and he, he sees that same wall and he says, hey, that wall is leaning. And the contractors again say, don't worry about it. When the guy comes to, to mud all the gaps there and cover up all, the, all the, the nail holes and so on and so forth, you won't be able to tell that it's leaning. So the mud guy comes, The same thing happens. He's like, that wall is leaning. Don't worry. When the painter comes and he paints it, you won't be able to tell that the wall is leaning. You can see how the frustration is is building up in this person. He's like, it's clearly leaning. So the painter comes and he says, and he paints the wall and he tells him, look, the wall is clearly leaning. And the painter, being quick on his feet, says, don't worry. When the paint dries, you won't be able to tell that the wall is leaning. Of course, when the paint dries, there's no one else that you can blame. And the problem is there probably to teach the main lesson of when you do something, do it right the first time. Because if you don't, it's just going to carry on. But as with most proverbs, there are multiple ways of looking at it. And one thing I gained from this proverb is the responsibility of fixing the mistake should have been with the, with the framers, right? But they pass on the responsibility to the next person who in turn passes on the responsibility to the next person. And at the end of it, it's no one's fault except the person who saw it who should have stood up and said, no, but I want you to fix it. But we still tell ourselves sometimes someone else will do it. Okay, what about the second one? I am too busy to take on anything more. Now, I want to be careful here. Sometimes this is true. Okay, we need to have a balance. It is possible that you can overwork yourself. Uh, James White was one of those kinds of people, and we do have some of those people today who take on so much that they cannot do it. But if we're honest, most of us, most of the time, are not that busy. More, more so, it's that we're busy with things that we feel are more important than something else. And so we pursue the things that we feel are more important than whatever else it is that someone may be asking us to do. So this has to do with the priorities of life, right? How am I going to prioritize my life? Obviously, God is going to be first and foremost. Obviously, God says there is a work for man to do, the daily duties of life, okay? There is cooking, there's cleaning, there's earning wages so that you can provide for your home, for your family, and pay all the bills and expenses, 
But then after you get away from God and family and, and providing for the needs of such, then you get into this area where it's like, how much time do I spend investing in hobbies? How much time do I spend investing in something for the church? How much time do I invest in helping someone who may be a friend or a distant friend with the situation that they are going through? These are all questions that we ask ourselves. And to have the correct perspective, we need to understand that at times these priorities may need to change, right? I wish, I wish that I could say, man, there's just a golden list of priorities that the Bible gives us and they like the Ten Commandments. They're just written in stone and they never change. But as anyone who has had any life experience will tell you, things in life change. And there are times where things which may be low in your priority list jump right up there towards the top and I have to deal with this now, otherwise things are not gonna end well for me, right? Or, or this needs to be done now, otherwise it's not gonna get done for years and that would be a tremendous shame and so on and so forth, whatever it is. And then after that's accomplished, you can go back to other priorities. And so the list of priorities are constantly changing. And this is a perspective that we need to have. And the question we need to be asking ourselves is, how are my priorities aligned today? Do they need any sort of modification? Um, am I shying away from responsibilities that I feel God may be asking me to do because instead I want to pursue responsibilities or tasks which I just find pleasing or comfortable? Which brings me to my third one, which is another excuse. I am comfortable where I am. I don't want to take on. To take on any more responsibility would be to inconvenience me. Part of me wants to say, well, welcome to life, you know, because responsibility is at many times inconvenient. Now, many times we bear with the inconvenience because we feel like whatever it is that we're putting our effort and energy and thought into is worthwhile. So we'll take a little bit of inconvenience because at the end of it, we want to have that oh, moment like, I'm glad I did that and that was accomplished. I'm glad I was a part of that. And that's a good thing to do. But as an excuse, many... Many times some of us say, well, I've just got comfortable. Why do I have to do something more? And this may be a time again that we need to ask ourselves the question, what is the priority that God wants me to be focusing on right now? Number four, I don't want to be blamed if something should go wrong. Or I don't want to be blamed if the project doesn't come to its completion the way that everyone else thinks it should. Right? When you take on responsibility, you take on that mantle of being accountable. Of course, and I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but it is sometimes the case that those who say, I don't want to be blamed, will say, but I'm more than happy to blame others who do have the position of responsibility and who aren't doing so. I'm more than happy to say, oh, things aren't going well, and oh, that leadership is so bad. Oh, would you, would you like a chance to do it? Oh, no, 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 no I'm far too busy. No, I, I can't. But see, we're, we're very good at, at critiquing, but it's very hard to build something up. You know, I learned this lesson when I was young and when I'd go to the beaches of Australia, which I, which I absolutely love. Any kind of beach is a good beach, in, in my opinion, for the most part. And I love playing in the sand. And of course, when I was little, you know, building sandcastles was just basically a mound. You just pile up the sand as high as you can. As you grow older, you learn that, oh, wet sand can actually, you know, clump and hold the sand, can hold its shape better if it's a little bit wet. So then you start filling up your sand bucket, making the sand wet. Now you're getting a bit of structure. Finally, you get to the age where you're like, I'm not making one little sandcastle. I'm making, you know, a four by four fort with a moat all the way around it and all kinds of stuff. And you can be out there for hours, maybe even getting multiple people involved and saying, we are really going to build something. Of course, then it comes time, we need to leave and go home, and you can do two things. You can leave it and hope that it's there the next time, right? <laughs> Never happens. Or you have some fun and you destroy it. And how long does it take to destroy it? Seconds, right? Less than a minute for what you have spent hours doing. It's very easy to critique something. It's very hard to build something up. And so when you may find yourself saying, well, I don't want to be blamed, be careful that you're also saying, I'm not going to blame anyone else either. Now, sometimes blame is that there are times where people are blamed and, and it's responsible to do so. I'm not intending that to, to be a pun in, in any way, 
seeing that our topic is responsibility, but God does hold people accountable in their positions. There are things which God is requiring people to do, and when they fail to do that, God does put the blame at their, at their door, as it was, and expects them. He's doing so in a merciful and patient way. I'm so glad for that. God is not there for the primary purpose to condemn us, and we should be thankful when we do feel that voice of the Holy Spirit saying, you know, you should have done better. You could have done better, but you didn't. Lord, please forgive me. Help me next time to do more and remember the lesson. But at the same time, we shouldn't shun being in a, princip- in a position of responsibility just because we don't want to be blamed. It's not a good excuse. Number five, I will end up doing most of the work. Okay, this is particularly true of when you do things in a team setting, right? And this is no more true than when you have group projects in high school and in college. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You want the good grade, but you get randomly put in a group and you're wondering, is everyone going to do what the assignment says or am I going to have to carry more of the load? And I praise the Lord that many times I've been pleasantly surprised and that hasn't been the case. And uh, I guess I praise the Lord as well when that hasn't been the case and when you have to take more of the load. It's much more comfortable working in a group where everyone is with you, right? Where they're supporting each other, where they're encouraging one another, and where they're saying, what else do you need? I'm here, I'm available. As opposed to, well, I've done my part, okay, uh, this is the little thing, and, and don't talk to me anymore until it's done. And then, of course, I'll come to make sure that I'm there for the presentation and get all the the credit and all the claps and applause and so on and so forth. So we don't want to have this kind of uh, perspective. And it's not a good excuse again. Finally, number six here, I don't feel that I have the necessary skills to help in the situation. Right? I'm not qualified enough. That's one that Moses used, right? Go and speak to Pharaoh. Oh, Lord, my tongue, you know, I, I, I have a stammer. I'm not good at speaking. To which God's response was what? Does anyone remember? Who made man's tongue? Am I not the creator? Are you telling me that, the, that what I have given you isn't good enough for, for the function? Why would I be asking you to do something if I knew you wouldn't be able to do it? That's in you know, my paraphrase of what God was saying to Moses. And of course, Moses goes right back up to the first excuse at the end of all of his excuses. And he says, please send anybody else. Just send someone else. I don't want to do this. And finally, God in his frustration says, look, Aaron is coming and you're going. Bye. Uh, you know, it's, it's phrased a little bit differently in there, but that's what I take out of it. Now, if I was to ask any of you, probably most of you here have either worked in groups or you have uh, been in a position where you hire someone or where you're asking someone to do something for you. And if I was to ask you this question, because it'll illustrate the point that I'm saying very, very well, I'm going to ask it between two extremes. The reality is most people fall along a spectrum on this and no one is really in one extreme. Or I should say rarely you will find people that are in the two extremes. But if you were in a position to hire someone and you had these two candidates to pick from, one person has zero skill. Zero skill. They can't, let's say you're, you're doing construction. They've never done construction before. But they have a good attitude. They're a person of integrity. They have a good worth ethic. They are um, eager to learn, and they're, they're capable once, once you see that they can follow instructions off the cable, but they don't know how to do anything. Or you have someone who is very, very skilled, but has a bad attitude, is dishonest, doesn't work very well. Which one would you rather hire? Most of you will say the first one. Now, given the context, there may be some exceptions, but for the most part, that's who we're trend to. And again, this is extreme examples. You rarely find someone who is who is on both extremes. They're either somewhere closer to one or closer to the other. But we naturally say that because skills can be taught fairly easily. Cut here, you know, enter the information in the program here. This is how this works. Almost every job that you take has, you know, a week or two of orientation, get you used to the workspace, you know, what it is that you're going to be doing, um, as opposed to uh, having someone who knows everything but who is incredibly difficult to get along with. Trying to re-educate someone's uh, or change their mind on attitude and on character is far more difficult than teaching someone skills. 
So that's not a good excuse either. I don't have the skills. Well, God will give you the skills. And God can teach you. Character and attitude are golden in this. When I looked at these, um, as I was reflecting this week on responsibility, I would summarize all six of these excuses with, with one short sentence, and that is they, the person who raises some of these may not necessarily, or I should say that illegitimately raises these, um, may not be the person who will say this out loud, but in the back of their mind, if they're true and honest to themselves, they will be feeling this at least, and that is that I don't agree with the mission. I don't agree with the task. I don't think we should be going in this direction. I think we should be going in that direction. So when someone asks me to do something in that direction, I will say, I'm busy, find someone else, I'm comfortable, whatever it is that I'm gonna say, because when, when all is said and done, the reality is I don't agree with that mission. And again, the same thing is what we find here in the book of Judges, right? They had conquered most of the land. There was only a little portion that was left and yet the children of Israel were so comfortable at that time, so busy at that time, find someone else to do it. I don't agree with that mission. I don't think we need to finish it. And that's why they didn't finish it. Because as a whole, there weren't enough people who said, I'll take on the responsibility and carry this all the way through. Our forefathers led us this far. God was with them. He will be with us. Let's continue. But that was not their perspective. Let's go to a story now, which was where our scripture reading was from, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. And again, some of the background to this was given during the, the scripture uh, reading this morning, uh, which was very good. Uh, Nehemiah is serving in the king's court. He is the cupbearer or the winebearer to the king. Uh, the king notices one day that he is very sorrowful. And this must not have been typical for Nehemiah, but he's sorrowful because he's heard of everything that's happening in Jerusalem. And the king notices that he's sorrowful and he says to him, why are you so sorrowful today? Nehemiah, having been praying and fasting, shares with him what has, what has been on his heart. And the king says, you know what? You need to go back and see that through. And they discuss how long will that be? And he sends some resources to go with him as well. And he goes there. And interestingly enough, when, when Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't start uh, putting a, a it's not a decree, but a, a kind of message out, invite all the nobles, the officials, like I want to talk to them. I mean, here's a high dignitary. When Nehemiah came into Jerusalem, it's not like no one knew. I mean, this was, they could see like someone important is coming. And when he was there, they were probably wondering, why is why is he here? Oh, he's a Jew. Oh, okay. So what's he doing here in Jerusalem? I mean, Persia is much better uh, than the state that we have here. And uh, of course, he takes a select group of men. And what he does is he goes around the city at night and he weaves in and out of the walls through the gates and notices the gates are burned with fire, notices what parts of the wall are still strong and usable, what parts are weak, need to be reinforced, what parts of the wall are just not there and need to be built and so on. So he's assessing the situation as he does this with the, with the men whom he is with. And then he comes uh, to verse 17 here, and he says to them, you see the distress that we are in. So sorry, verse 16. Let's read from verse 16. After he does the assessment, he hasn't told anyone the reason why he's come. Not yet. And he says this to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem, sorry, I didn't read verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, so he's gathered them together the next day, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, in waste, in ruin, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words which he had spoken to me. So, so they said, pardon me. <coughs> so they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. What was their reaction to what Nehemiah said? Positive. We'll take on the responsibility with you, Nehemiah. You're right, this does need to be done. And what follows is, I mean, 
It's so interesting to me, the polar opposites of these two stories, the book of Judges and what's happening in Nehemiah. Israel was in a position of strength when Joshua died. And yet they slowly weakened and weakened and weakened and weakened. When Nehemiah comes on the scene, Jerusalem is in a situation of weakness. They don't even have the walls or or the doors, the gates that lead into the city. They're all just burned. Anyone can come in. and That is what's happening. They're looting them. I mean, it's very difficult to make a living there and to stay safe there. And they just build and they go from this position of weakness into a position of strength. It, It truly is amazing. But it took everyone saying, or I should say a lot of people, it wasn't quite everyone, to say, we will take responsibility for this. We see that God is moving. And particularly in the story which Nehemiah told them, he told them about not just how God had been good, but also how the king had worked in his favor. This is how I know God is with me with this task. Because when the king asked me, he said, go. And he said, I'll give you some resources and you go and set your heart to do that. And so that is why he came. And they believed him and they said, let's get to it. And of course it takes them, does anyone remember how many days? 52 days, someone remembers, that's wonderful. 52 days to finish building the wall, but it was not without opposition, right? At a time of opposition. So what's one of the first things that they encountered? Well, one of the first things they encountered is is verse 19, where it says, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard it, they laughed at us and despised us. They laughed at us, ridiculed. That's the first thing that comes, ridicule. Unless you underestimate how powerful ridicule is, you will note that in the battle between David and Goliath, Goliath kept an entire army at bay just by using his words. I mean, he was a big guy, but all in all, he came out every day and all he did was pass curses and and put their God down and said, you guys aren't brave enough. All he's doing is ridiculing them. Anyone... You know, I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that if God could have used a shepherd boy with a sling, he probably could have used a farmer with a shovel. God could have used anyone. But it took someone to say, I'm not going to let this happen. God has been with me and God will be with me. And that's why David took up that mantle and say, okay, none of you want the responsibility to take this guy down. I'll take it. I know God has been with me. And he will be with me as I face him. But ridicule can be a powerful weapon of opposition. And yet, despite all this ridicule, they say, we're going to continue going forward. Then we get into chapter 3. And there's so many things I love about chapter 3. One thing Nehemiah does really, really well in his book. And we see this in other books as well. But particularly with this is he takes, he's very meticulous. And he goes to painstaking effort to make sure he gets everybody's name down and everyone's family down and where they are from for the most part because some who helped them were Gibeonites like they weren't even Israelites Uh, you read about that in let me see where is the Gibeonite verse 7 you'll find he was the governor of the region beyond they repaired uh, a residence of the governor of the region beyond the river and uh, there are more you will see that others joined in with Israel and said we are Israelites in as much as you are because we have the same faith in God that you do and they were able to join in the effort it wasn't true that only pure bloods uh, were able to build it was those who had the same mindset the same perspective who were allowed to work on the rebuilding of Jerusalem and so you read there and and I'm not going to read all of these names but he goes through and he lists them by family name he he lists the 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 eldest with all of his sons Uh, Some of them, I believe, where is it? Verse 12 indicates that Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, he and his daughters made repairs. So it wasn't just his sons that came, but he got his whole family involved. And you go down the list and you can read this. Notice verse 5. It says, next to them, as he's going down, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Then read again verse 27, or not again, but just read. And it says, after them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. So you see that the Tekoites repaired their section of the wall and they either got finished early or maybe it wasn't that uh, difficult as they had first thought it was. And they said, well, we've done our section, right? We can go home. No, there's still more to do. Hey, we're here. We can help. 
So they did another section of the wall on top of what some of the others um, had done. There's no competition there. Hey, we put in a gate today. What'd you do? Just lay some stones? I mean, you don't hear about any of that happening. They are all focused on one thing. Of course, this is what is recorded in chapter 3. What kind of opposition comes in chapter 4? Now they start getting physically attacked, right? So now the building has to change. You can't just build with two hands. You've got to build with, with one hand, sometimes two hands, but make sure one is ready to go for the sword because you're not sure when the enemy might come out and jump out at you and you have to be ready. Plus, they put out watchmen on the towers and said, if you blow the horn and you hear the horn blowing, you may not be attacked where you are. Go and rush and help your brothers and sisters on the other side so that they can ward off the enemy and we can get back to building. And this is what they did during this time. Then in chapter 5, there are some eternal, internal factors that are causing some troubles. The people, some of the people are complaining. They said, we have essentially mortgaged, uh, given over, sold our lands, gotten in debt so that we can pay some of the king's taxes, so that we can pay for our food. We have no means with which to pay back these loans, which we have borrowed from our own brothers and sisters here in Jerusalem to pay them back and get our lands back. Nehemiah says, this isn't good. Notice what he says there. He says, uh, beginning, I'm in chapter 5 here, Let's start from verse 10. I also with my brethren and servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Usury, it's interest is essentially uh, the word there. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, also one hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil you have charged them. So they said... I almost about dropped when I heard this. We will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Can anyone let me know a bank that would do this today? I mean, some of these people who are wealthy, who may have been considered nobility in Jerusalem, probably lost a huge chunk of their wealth this day. They gave everything back, would require nothing and paid them one hundredth of what they actually took so that they would have a means to get going. That's amazing. Why? Because when I look at this positive story and the trend of taking on responsibility in the back of their minds, I have to, the only way I can explain it is they said, we believe in the mission. We believe this is something God wants us to do and therefore we're going to do it. And it doesn't matter what gets in the way. Oh, interest, you know, we're doing things. You know what? You're right. You have it all back. You don't have to pay us and we'll give you something to get started. That's really nice. I mean, one, they, they have divisions from outside, people who are attacking them. The divisions on the inside seem to disappear because the mission is more important. In chapter 6, we have that planned conspiracy, right? That open letter, that that they send out saying, oh, we're going to tell the king of, of, uh, of Persia here, saying that he is, he is uh, you are trying to rebuild the wall so that you can revolt against him. And then, of course, with that, they are hoping to, and they are beginning to plot the murder of Nehemiah should he come out and see them, which Nehemiah doesn't. He says, I am too busy doing what the Lord wants me to do. I don't have time. So he's sometimes saying you're too busy actually is very, very appropriate. Uh, which we find in this story. But in essence, as we look at this story, we see that they all believed in the mission. They believed it was valuable enough, that it was important enough, and more importantly, they saw that God was in it and was working in and through them, before them and after them, and they said, this needs to be done. We'll do it no matter what. I love this story. So the question that I have for you is, were there people in Jerusalem who were benefited by the building of the wall, who didn't contribute to it at all? Absolutely. But did they have the same story? No. They didn't have the story, which no doubt they may have had every single day for those 52 days of saying, man, you know what happened? There was a cry and all of a sudden I looked around and there were 10 people behind me marching to me. And just when I thought there were like five guys behind me that rushed in front, and then the horn blew and even more came after that. I mean, can you imagine the kind of atmosphere 
that each of these families who helped pitch in and build must have felt at the end of each day, and in particular at the end of the 52 days when they saw all the gates up, all the wall built, and being able to say like, we did it. Praise the Lord. It must have been, it must have been amazing. You know, uh, as I think of responsibility even in today's age, I reflect on the fact that to a great extent, I don't want to say this is the only exclusive factor that contributes to this, but part of our well-being, part of our meaning in life, our worth as individuals and as a group is dependent upon the responsibility that we take upon ourselves. When we feel that sense of accomplishment that I stepped up to say, I didn't have to do that, but I did it. And you know what? Praise the Lord. I did it well. God was able to move, and many people now benefited by the choices that I made or by whatever it is that has happened. Should we be surprised that in an age where many in society are saying, someone else can do that, I'm happy to blame them, so on and so forth, making excuses, not taking responsibility, that we see that depression is on the rise, suicide is on the, on the rise, and all kinds of other mental ailments. Again, I'm not saying the exclusive cure is take on responsibility. I'm not trying to say that, but could it be that they could be linked at least partially? Could it be that even though we find responsibility inconvenient, somehow through that inconvenience, we do have a sense of worth? And we do feel a sense that God does love us and care about us, and we have a sense that God is working in and through us when we step out a little bit and do the things which we don't have to, but which we want to for the sake of the gospel. I want to end with uh, a quote here. There's one in your bulletin as well, but in particular, I found another one in Acts of the Apostles, which was very, very good and made me think a lot at this time. Uh, Acts of the Apostles, page 454, and it's speaking of the Apostle Paul, how he trained and how he worked with church members, and oftentimes, oh, Paul, you know, please move on and go to another church. We don't really want you here until he was finally taken captive and he had to be in his long imprisonment at Rome. Notice what she says here in in this context. She says, Not until Paul was removed from them did the believers realize how heavy were the burdens he had borne in their behalf. Heretofore, they had largely excused themselves from responsibility and burden-bearing because they lacked his wisdom, tact, and indomitable energy. How many of those excuses have just been listed there? I don't know. I haven't looked, but quite a few of them. They're too busy. Well, I don't have the skills. I don't have as much wisdom. Well, Paul, he just has so much energy. He can do it. But now, left in their inexperience to learn the lessons they had shunned, they prized his warnings, counsels, and instructions as they had not prized his personal work. And as they learned of his courage and faith during his long imprisonment, they were stimulated to greater fidelity and zeal in the cause of Christ. I mean, my question to you is, as as we end here and as we reflect on responsibility, I hope this is a discussion that you talk about this afternoon at at the dinner table and throughout the evening. Am I the kind of person who wants to shun responsibility now in the hopes that one day I'll take it on But then I may not have the advantages I may have now to have someone to mentor me, to help me, someone else to rely on, someone else to encourage me. You think if you can't do that with all the encouragement and the help that's available now, you will when everyone is gone? When you are alone, you're somehow going to step up and do amazing and miraculous things? Not to say that God can't do it. He can. But it's not likely. More often than not, we train ourselves in a habit of, I don't want responsibility, I don't want responsibility, and then comes a time, man, I really should do this, but you know what? Someone else can do it again. Fall into that habit. What is the kind of perspective that you want to have? Or, yeah, or do you want to learn while Paul, as it were, is here, while those who are experienced are here, and you can call, you can ask, you can gain encouragement, you can find tasks to do, which will not only be a benefit to all those whom you impact, but will actually be of greatest benefit to yourself. So I leave you with these two thoughts to contemplate as you reflect. It's very personal, and I can't tell you what you should do or not do, 
God knows your hearts better than I do. God knows your life better than I do. He knows the parts that you need to cut out. He knows the parts where you can take on more. But some of you are at the point where you're saying, you know, I really feel like I have taken off enough responsibility right now and I see God working through me and I'm open to maybe doing a little bit more if God should lead, but for now I'm at a good place. Praise the Lord, continue praying. May God use you, may God work through you. Keep going forward step by step. But some of you here are definitely feeling that feeling of, you know what, I could do a little bit more. I could do just that little bit more. By God's grace, I want to. Lord, please show me the things that I should take out and help me to maybe take that first step in the direction that I know you are leading me in, but which I am very reluctant, no matter which excuse I'm using, to take. The mission is before us, my brothers and sisters. It's not going away until Jesus comes. And even when Jesus does come, heaven is not going to be a boring place. There is going to be a lot for us to do there. Let's not get into the habit of someone else can do it because in heaven, someone else can do it may be turned into, well, let's not ask so-and-so. They really ask someone else to do it. So let's just, <laughs> it's not going to be like that. We are going to have places where we can get involved and where we can be active here to set us up for being involved and being active with the angels up in heaven in God's kingdom. So let's reflect on these things and let's make our decision today on this. Let's stand now for our closing song. Uh, Hark the voice of Jesus calling.
with birds for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us to be the kind of people who don't shun responsibility, but who will reflect and seek you first to see if this is something we should take on, on whatever the task may be, whatever it is that we are being asked, or whatever idea you may be giving to us. Maybe no one has thought of it, and this is something which needs to be done. Father, I pray, please be with our hearts and minds. Help us to be attuned to your will so that as we go about doing even our daily things, we may be accomplishing your purposes for us. Please be with our families, Lord. Be with our friends. Be with us as individuals and be with us as a church body. May we continually lift you up in our lives, in our words, in our actions, in our very thoughts. And may you draw all others to yourself. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.